0: you are now listening to a Fit Plus Love production. Something really interesting happens in the like exercise world, where in 1968, there is this military doctor named Kenneth Cooper, and he basically discovers cardio. And he calls it aerobics, which is very confusing, because later we have like Jane Fonda aerobics. But basically, he challenges the dominant ideas about exercise, which are that they are weightlifting and calisthenics, and he says actually exercise is for everybody, but the kind of exercise that everybody should be doing for health, for you know, weight management is something that he calls aerobics. And that means getting your heart rate up. And so he becomes this champion of swimming, biking, running, but really jogging being his thing. And he, I think it's like he jogs like every day, three miles, like for his whole life basically, starting in the 1950s started in the 1950s when he had, like many men working white collar jobs in the 1950s, a heart attack scare. And in order to redress that, he takes to running every day and really improves his health.
1: That was Natalia Melman Petrozella. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative, Hello, welcome, and welcome back to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. Today on the podcast, I am super psyched to be syncing up with my friend, author, historian, fitness instructor, and thought leader. Natalia Melman Petrozella. Natalia is a historian of contemporary American politics and culture, and an associate professor of history at the New School in New York City. She is the author of two books, the most recent one being Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession, which we are talking about today, and her first book, Classroom Wars. Natalia is also a certified fitness instructor with Intensati, the mind-body practice which she has been teaching for nearly three decades, and where we met way back when. She is also the co-host of the weekly history podcast, Past Present, which discusses recent events in American politics in the context of American political history. Natalia is a passionate runner, yogi, and fitness enthusiast. And she has lots of insights to share about the history and culture of exercise in America. It's a super fun convo. During our conversation, we talk about her new book, Fit Nation, and how it connects to her personal and professional journey. We discuss the origins and evolution of fitness trends at a high level as discussed in her book, and do a deeper dive into yoga and running, how they all reflect and shape broader social and political issues. And of course, we talk about her own fitness routine and how she balances it with her busy academic career. Natalia is a fascinating and inspiring person, and I'm sure you're going to love our conversation. If you do, leave us a review on Apple. All you need to do is head over to Apple, wherever you listen, click on the Marnie on the Move podcast, scroll through all the episodes, click on the five stars, and then click on the tiny, tiny writing that says leave a review. Leave a review. Tell us what you love. Also, share this conversation on your social channels and tag us. We'll tag you back. So without further ado, let's get started. Here's my interview with Natalia melman Petrozella. Natalia, awesome to have you on the podcast. I'm so excited about your book, Fit Nation, and all that you do. So welcome.
0: I'm so happy to be here. It's such an honor. So thank you for having me.
1: You are welcome. So I loved reading your book and I definitely want to get into the details and all of the history of fitness and how it's impacted our culture and what's happening in the world. But when I opened your book, I read something, a paragraph that you wrote on like the first page about how the most powerful lessons we learn in the gym are those that we take into the world, which is something you learned from Patricia Moreno. And that's kind of how we met. She was a fitness visionary, the founder of Intensati, and a real game changer on the scene. And you were a big part of this movement. So take me back to this powerful shift in time when you got involved with Intensati and what was it all about?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So to give a little context, that's the dedication page and this book about fitness culture in America is dedicated to my sadly late friend and teacher Patricia Moreno. So this idea that, you know, the gy- the most powerful lessons we learn in the gym are those we take into the world, like that to me is the most exciting thing about working out. Like I love you know, seeing my body change and getting a sweat and the endorphins and all of the like scientific stuff that's happening to my body. But really it's like those lessons of learning that, you know, if I can push myself through an extra push up, like what could I do at my job? Like, how could I be better with my kids? Like, you know, if I can feel this good doing this, how can I create that joy for others as a professor in the classroom? And so that whole notion of like the gym, yeah, being the gym, but being an avenue to or a template for creating that kind of experience in the world has always been very inspiring to me. And Patricia Moreno is the person whose workout program, I think, like sort of embrace that potential most explicitly. So that's all very, very meta. But to answer your question most specifically, okay, so I've been like I'm a historian. i have been a historian for a long time, very like academic, but I was always this kind of gym rat who just loved working out. And those worlds didn't really come together. The way that they came together is really this book, but that started in many ways when I met Patricia Moreno and I walked into her class and her class in Tensati, like it it had all of the fun and the sweat and the challenge and all that of all these classes I'd been taking. But she combined that physicality with this really, purposeful commitment to use spoken affirmations to, to make those movements into something more. To be like, I am strong when I'm punching. What? How does that physical strength in my body, how could I manifest that in the world? So that's, I, I got into that as a student, literally 2005, and then I got certified as an instructor in 2007, all while I was like getting my PhD. And that was in many ways the birth of this book, connecting fitness to uh, the larger culture.
1: So you would say that Fit Nation was kind of inspired by your personal fitness journey from that time. And then also you combined your expertise as a historian and a fitness instructor in this project.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I mean, definitely I've studied like some pretty hateful things. And this book is not all positive, as you know. Um, But I tend to be like these books take a long time to write this book. I worked on for almost 10 years. Yeah. And so you have to be you know, certainly fascinated. But I think if you want to be happy, you have to at least enjoy certain facets of the thing that you're studying. And so I did come into this because I wanted to better understand this world of fitness and the gym, not sport, by the way, which we can get into because there are a million books written about like the history of organized athletics. But I'm like, here's this really powerful world that I'm in. And like, there really aren't a lot of books about this that aren't like, How to get flat abs, thin thighs in thirty days? Like, there's a lot of prescriptive fitness books. But how did we get here to a point when people spend lots of time and money going to the gym that didn't really exist? And the books that did exist, I didn't feel like told the whole story. So I'm like, I think I'm the person to figure this out, and that's what I hope I've done.
1: So the book covers a over a century of American history from the World's Fair to Muscle Beach to Fat Farms to feminist health clinics and yoga retreats and all that you just talked about to health clubs and more. So so maybe you could share, like, take me back. I know that you don't need to go through every chapter of your book because each chapter yeah. is like one of these movements, which is super awesome. But maybe give me like the highlights of over the decades, over the century, like how fitness has evolved in culture.
0: Yeah. So at the risk of giving you a long lecture, let me try and give you like <laughs> the overarching story and then we can like pepper in some totally. details. Yeah. So I started the World's Fair 1893 in this moment when this strong man, Eugene Sandow, is packing the house every single night. And what is he doing? He's basically like flexing on stage and performing feats of strength. And I start with that for a variety of reasons. But the most important one is that like at that point, like working out regularly to build a muscular body, that is a performance like that is a weird thing to be doing. Like people are packing into that audience because you can't see a guy who looks like Sandow at like your local equinox because that doesn't exist, right? right? And very few people who are in the audience night after night. I'm talking like 6,000 people a night. Night after night, those people in the audience, that is a generation of people, believe it or not, who did not look at a guy like that and think, oh, I should really get to the gym." That that expectation did not exist. Like actually Sandow was more like a freak show. Like Sandow was someone, um, and these other strong men, they might be at like Coney Island with like the bearded lady or the so-called Siamese twins. And so a lot of the, what I argue in the book, is like, I try to take us or tell the story of how we got from that working out as this like weird performance subculture, all the way to today. When like, I say I'm writing this book about workout culture, people's most common thing was either like, oh my God, I'm so bad, I need to work out. Or let me tell you about my new training regime. <laughs> I'm like doing an ultra. And, you yeah. Know, and so it's a very different moment. And so the basic story of how that happened is effectively that at the Sandow, in Sandow's time, like working out not for sports was considered like really narcissistic because it was so narrowly physical. Like anybody, if you were a man who was so concerned what your body looks like and who was like, wanted to spend all this time in the company of like other sweaty men, like that was considered really suspicious. Probably you were gay, they thought. (laughs) although That wasn't the language of the time. But you certainly like... Yeah, you certainly didn't have, you weren't focused on the right things. Like you should be focused on cerebral things, on like working, like not this. So that, and then for women, it was sort of a little bit flipped, like that's so masculine to want want to have muscles or to, you know, it's unfeminine to sweat and and do like rigorous exercise. And so there's a lot of chapters of how this happens, but the big um, case that I make is that for a variety of reasons, federal government has to do with it, The kind of nascent industry has to do with it, our pop culture environment has to do with it. Fitness changes from something that's seen as very narrowly physical and thus suspicious to something that's part of living a full, well life. Like we embrace as a culture the idea that mind and body are connected and that it's up to individuals to take responsibility for cultivating their not just absence of illness, but their overall well-being, and right. a big part of that is working on your body. And so, working on your body goes from being like a distraction from the important things to being integral to the so-called important things. And a lot of people buy into that, like from a lot of different backgrounds. And so, that's like basically the story of what 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 I uh, of what I tell in this book.
1: Yeah, and I liked how you like you know some of the things that I really that really resonated with me as someone who's practiced yoga for a long time, as a runner, as an athlete. I like how you talk about yoga, right? Like, that was, like, before intensity, right? That was, like, one of the first practices, you know, as a yogi, like, yoga's not fitness. Some people do it for fitness, but that wasn't the original intention behind it, right? It was, like, one of the original sort of things that you do that's movement for mind and body. And, yeah.
0: Yeah, the yoga piece was so interesting because unlike some of the things I write about in this book, there actually is really rich historical literature on yoga and uh, that was very helpful to me, but it tended to be from like a really different angle that I was interested in. So a lot of it comes out of like, what you would call like post-colonial studies like people looking at the way that like this Indian practice right gets like diffused through the world and in a lot of ways like appropriated right and that's all very interesting and that's in here but I was really interested in the connection of yoga to exercise practices and how that happened in the United States and it's a really like winding and kind of interesting road Per what I was saying before, I think that in some ways the most relevant thing is that yoga really became so important to kind of like elevating exercise. It created this new vocabulary, right? You're not an instructor; you are a guru or yeah. like a teacher, right? Yes. This isn't like a workout class; this is a practice, yeah. right? You're I not just trying did to that get in the Question thighs. too. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, right. You're not, you know, you're not trying to get thinner thighs. You're like trying to find enlightenment. Right. And so all of that is actually really key to like upping the esteem of like this, like gross, sweaty thing you do just because you want big biceps or like a thin waist. And what's fascinating is like, and I trace, as you saw, like all of these kind of debates and tensions, like in the pages of yoga journal and in some of the conferences where like you know there's not one yoga community but you see like leading lights in the yoga environment really like grappling with this like on the one hand some people there's a very common story which I think a lot of people are aware of and you've been hinted at in your question of like oh you know like yoga is this like pure spiritual thing and then like the gym world came along and corrupted it and just made it like another like workout practice and like (laughs) that's not what we are about and it's sort of like almost like this like they have a little bit of like a, almost like purity, like superiority of like, this is this one thing. And then the gym came along and corrupted it. Okay. There's aspects of that for sure. But what I thought was really fascinating too, is what I was saying of like the way the yoga world actually shaped the fitness world. Right. And the way that, like I was saying, all that language comes into the exercise world, which really gives it an upgrade. And that happens if, um you know, any listeners are like, well, when, 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 like there are different moments when that happens. The 1960s is a really big moment for like yoga to kind of flower in the United States in part because there's this, um, there's the whole counterculture and the kind of interest in like Eastern religion and alternative practices. And this is when like acupuncture, Reiki, all these things kind yeah. of become more popular. But it's also, there's like immigration law that changes this. Like in 1965, our immigration policy changes and South Asians are allowed in the United States in like really large numbers. And so that creates a kind of more vibrant yoga community. But then also in the 1990s, there's this other really big turning point. This is when you start to see those yoga fusion practices, whether it's Bikram, which is like a total workout um, yoga or like all these like. Boot camps, et cetera, yoga boot camps. And that is really when you have like that like hippie generation kind of getting older, aging out of high impact aerobics, wanting a workout, but like wanting to make it like serious and countercultural. And then and I think that has a really big, a really big role in it too.
1: I feel like when did Eddie Stern open his studio? That was probably he's 10 years older than me, you know, and then he like went over to India, studied with Patabi Joyce, who Brought Ashtanga to the US through Eddie. And yeah, but that, Mm -hmm. I think that was like right in the 90s, maybe, maybe end of, yeah. That
0: totally tracks. Yeah. Yeah, that tracks. I actually, it's interesting. There are so many stories that, like, I don't know, and I probably should know all of them, but a lot of them fit in a general kind of structure of, yeah, exactly what you're talking about, right? Someone's exposed to these practices. Yeah. I was kind of on the cusp.
1: Like, my practice started right on the cusp of this movement in the 90s, right? So I got into mm-hmm. it because I was into the spirituality and, you know, I was I was always a fitness junkie, gym junkie, like we know, you know, I used to do all the mm-hmm. spin classes, all that stuff, but before I was yeah. a triathlete and I was a big yogi. So I got into it, I got into the spirituality, I got into like this classic practice, ashtanga. and then all of a sudden all these studios started doing yoga classes and I was horrified. Yeah. I mean, I embrace it now. Why were you horrified? Let me ask you a question. Why were you horrified? I was horrified because I just had like this like very purist mindset around yoga. You know, it wasn't a workout. It wasn't fitness. It was, you know, it's intense. And I always and I also got my certification to teach, uh, you know, 500 hours. And I just I just felt like as somebody in fitness and both in yoga that it was like kind of silly. I don't know. It wasn't my jam, you know. I was I'm a I'm a like a diehard like you know I was a diehard yogi, right. but now I am. it. Yeah, no, it, and but... you see that a lot,
0: right? And there's not a right answer to this, and there's no question that like the popularization of this program, like with anything, I think like sh- made it a little shallower in yeah. some places, Diluted. right? Like yeah. I mean, yeah, I in a studio that a large chain studio that shall not be named. Right. I went there recently. And, you know, there's someone who probably did her 200 hours, and I don't think she was doing anything dangerous necessarily, yeah. but she's just kind of, like, offering kind of, like, little nuggets of spiritual wisdom, which now you hear not even just in yoga classes, but, like, in other places, too. Everywhere. That just felt like these were, like, the bullet points on yeah. some training manual. Like, you know, and, like, that's fine. I, I, like, sort of take that all in and observe from a place of non judgment. But yeah. it really is interesting to see how that emerged, yeah. right? And also... Um, and this I think is not something people really always pick up on, but the kind of mid-century, like nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, um, yogis in the United States who were trying to bring it into YMCAs and fitness environments and sort of mainstream places, they articulated again and again, this is not religion. This is an yeah, exercise well, practice because there was a yeah. yeah, there was a ton of skepticism among, you know, right thinking, God-fearing yes. Christians of like, this is paganism and this is dangerous. And you know, there's still, there still are fights about that today. In the 90s, there was a the law on the books. I can't remember if it was Alabama or where I wrote about it in the book. It's one of the Alabama or Mississippi. I think Alabama to outlaw teaching yoga in public schools because they said this is breaches the separation of church and state. And so like yoga to me is so interesting yes. itself but then as it moves into these secular fitness environments the way that it gets secularized and marketed it's just fascinating.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I remember when I got my first Buddha and my first Ganesh, like, I'm Jewish. My parents were horrified. I was in so much trouble. I had to explain to them. Yeah, I was like, it is not religious. It is just like, you know, an aspect. You know, it's not, I'm not like, you know, being Jewish, like, you're only allowed to pray to one God. I'm like, I'm not praying to the Buddha. Right, right, exactly. Well, it's mindfulness, right? So much misinformation. Um,
0: Well, this is actually fascinating. So I'll shout out a great organization called At The Well, which is a Jewish women's wellness organization. And I had the occasion to speak with the founder recently. And she said something so interesting, which is, you know, like in the fitness industry, as you see in the book, in the yoga world, there are lots of Jews who are teaching all of these things. Right. I'm, I'm Jewish too. And part of the reason that she had started at the well, was she's like, you know, there are all these women named Rachel who are teaching about the spiritual wisdom from Hinduism or that they're learning through yoga, but not tapping into like these Jewish traditions. And I think it's really funny because um, it's just, Yeah, totally. And so I think we're seeing that, like, resurgence in in some spaces, too, which I I don't cover that in the book, but I found it really interesting. Yeah, but I know,
1: you know, you're, like, deeply immersed in all of this. So I figure, like, it's not necessarily in the book, but you are a historian. And honestly, like. This book needs to be bought by all the universities to, for education. Please. Like This book is awesome. <laughs> Shout out to our sponsors at Delta G. Delta G is the creator of the revolutionary Delta G ketone ester, an exogenous ketone being used by world champion Ironman, Tour de France, Formula One, Olympians, recreational athletes, and longevity-seeking, wellness-savvy individuals looking to optimize their athletic performance and everyday health. I have been adding Delta G exogenous ketones to my morning coffee, using it to recover after hard workouts and in training for the past several months. I am a huge fan. Beyond boosting energy levels and performance, ketones improve mental clarity, boost metabolic flexibility, and increase insulin sensitivity. Ketones are the brain's preferred fuel source, even when glucose is present. Ketones are nature's super fuel. When the body is pushed to its limits, we convert stored body fat into ketones for energy that help fuel the brain and body. Delta G delivers that exact ketone produced naturally in the body called DBHB. With Delta G, you can achieve high levels of circulating blood ketones, also known as ketosis, safely. And immediately. Delta G was created through a collaboration between the University of Oxford and NIH with funding from the Department of Defense in 2003 as a way to provide efficient fuel for warfighters. Just two years ago, Delta G became available to the public. Throughout the years, researchers have been able to utilize this technology in various studies, amounting to over 55 published Delta G studies, with around 25 ongoing. It's time to take your health and athletic performance to the next level. Head over to Ketones.com and use our code, Marnie20, to get started. So then the other thing that you <laughs> talk you. about, I'm just switching gears, is running. I mean, and yeah. you're a runner. I know, because I just saw you running. I was like standing there making Instagram videos. That's thats kind of you to call that running.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm in like a low point of my running abilities. But yes, I, I, I am. I, yes, let's call me a runner, damn it.
1: Yeah, you got to <laughs> embrace it. I mean, seriously. So you talk a lot about running, right? You talk about the American jogging mm-hmm. craze, which... You know, I've read a lot of books about that because I've read books about Bill Bowerman and I've obviously read the Phil Knight book about Nike. And uh, there's some other coaches that had like the Humboldt Toads, which was another group back in like the 60s, 70s in California where mm-hmm. like people actually were like Americans started running and getting paid sponsorships in college and all that stuff. So, you know, talk to me a little bit about the American jogging craze and that chapter of the book and how that kind of leads you to Kara Switzer and Title IX.
0: Yeah, totally. So, And also, you're such a running inspiration to me. I mean, I see you sometimes. You probably don't even see me running out there because you're going so fast. I'm blind.
1: I'm blind. I'm like, these are for seeing you (laughs) up close and reading things. But when I'm out running, I don't wear glasses and I can't see far away. So unless you're like right in front of me. But, well, I'm glad you were stopped that day, right into you. So, okay, so he, something really interesting
0: happens in the like exercise world where in 1968, there is this military doctor named Kenneth Cooper and he basically discovers cardio. <laughs> and he calls it aerobics, which is very confusing because later we have like Jane Fonda aerobics. But basically he challenges the dominant ideas about exercise, which are that they are weightlifting and calisthenics. And he says, actually, Exercise is for everybody, but the kind of exercise that everybody should be doing for health, for, you know, weight management is something that he calls aerobics. And that means getting your heart rate up. And so he becomes this champion of swimming, biking, running, but really jogging being his thing. And he I think it's like he jogs like every day, three miles, like for his whole life, basically starting in the 1950s started in the 1950s when he had like many men working white collar jobs in the 1950s a heart attack scare and in order to redress that he takes to running every day and he really improves his health now it's hard to express how uh, revolutionary that was like there were a lot of doctors at that time who were like this is the worst thing like your heart will actually explode if you go jogging every day like this is very inappropriate if you're a woman your uterus will fall out <laughs> like you know th- like, really this is what people said Amazing. but like there was a big like an- yeah anti running thing there were towns that issued tickets to joggers because like it was an inappropriate use of public space like imagine that right wow. so um th- yeah so this is this like big scientific evolution of discovering cardio and then the good thing about jogging, as Bill Bowerman um, announces in the first book that he co-authors called Jogging, which actually came out just before the aerobics book, so it has no research in it because there was no research. But like jogging, free, easy for everyone, and so this kind of launches, um, you know, a kind of fitness craze, which is much more accessible in a lot of ways than going to a health club. Or going up to like some big heavy weights, which like women worried would actually women and men worried would make them bulky and look like muscle bound. Jogging, as was much touted, like anybody can do that. You just need some like old shoes. Like they weren't even selling really merchandise right. yet. Like you need some old rubber sold shoes, some clothes you're not wearing to the office anymore. This is literally the way they marketed it. Yeah. And anybody can do it. Now, of course, and part of what I, and that was a really big deal. And we should just say that, like that really kicked off like a big, big craze in the early seventies. That being said, um, one of the things that I point out is, especially because this kind of like idea that everybody can just go jogging if they motivate, yeah. if they're sufficiently motivated. I push back on that because I'm like, um, oh, no. I mean, like, you and I live in a nice area, right? right? But even you and me, I, I don't know about you. Like, my husband can go jogging a lot more hours of the day than I can because right. I don't want to be out there after dark. On our lo- lovely route there, there's, like, been
1: attacks yeah. on Yeah, no, right? I mean, I so, carry mace with me now, and I run in the middle of the you? day. Wow. Yeah, and I also carry mace yeah. on my bike because I will, like, seriously – spray someone in the eyes, even if they look at me.
0: <laughs> As women, like we face that particular thing. So that yeah. constrains when we can go and do this. And same thing of uh, people of color, like, I mean, so I really push back on that kind of like universalism of like anyone can just go running, right. but it is relatively more accessible than a lot of other um, exercise programs that yes. existed at that time. So, you know, I explore that. Um, I think it, hopefully with some new detail, because there have been yeah. a lot of books about jogging. It's one of those things like yeah. yoga, a lot of people have written about, but I talk about it from the perspective of this like scientific change, um, around like what is constituted as exercise, but also in terms of the industry that comes up around it. Like, you know, I was so lucky I got to go to Nike, which like very few people wow, got to do. And I so got cool. access to their digital archives. Yeah. To their like digital archives. It was so funny. What they were most concerned about is I wasn't going to like steal design ideas. Yeah. And I'm like, I couldn't like make a pair of sneakers. if you paid me even <laughs> with like your amazing archive. That's like, yeah, don't worry about that. That's so um, cool. But so yeah, I trace like their marketing of running, the way that their messaging that they use shifts, their really pathbreaking decision to make women's running shoes and the way that they tied that to feminism in the 1970s in their yeah. marketing. And you know, this isn't a book about women and exercise, but there's a lot of gender stuff in there. And one of the things I found so interesting about running in this period was the way that it was and was not connected to feminism and to Title IX. And in this chapter about jogging and running, it's probably, I would say in the whole book, the one where I most get like connect to the sports world because I try to kind of make the boundary between sports and fitness a little clearer. But here I found it like from my perspective as a historian and also just like a human being, like we know a lot about Title IX, right? Like the the, the landmark legislation that um, 1970s feminists fought for to like uh, end gender discrimination in access to sports. And that had a huge impact. But I was like, okay, that we know that. But, like, how about all those women who are not going out for the team? How did this sensibility shift around what women's bodies were capable of, what women were entitled to? How did that change their ideas about movement? Yeah. And um, one of the big, like, places that that happens in interesting ways is around running and jogging, both with decorated runners you've heard of, Catherine Switzer, um, you know, uh Uh, what's, oh my God, Roberta Gibb, right? Bobby Gibb, um, you know, all of these kind of really famous runners and like tracing how Title IX changed their trajectory, but also how they became champions of recreational running. Like I do this whole thing about like the Bonnie Bell races, which are these early road races that are going into communities all over the country and saying like, hey ladies, like show up for a 5K. And they're doing it in this way that they're both doing something totally new. This wasn't something women did, but they're connecting it to kind of conventional femininity, like, and then stop by the makeup counter with your (laughs) bib number and get a makeover with Bonnie Bell cosmetics. And then that, that stuff is everywhere. And it's really interesting to look at that culture shift that's happening. And then also to look at like these freaking incredible women athletes, Switzer among them who were at the helm of this, who were pathbreaking, but honestly, most of them had a very ambivalent relationship to the more explicitly political feminist movement, you know? And I think that's interesting too, that like you, and and some of them have, including Switzer, have sort of changed the way they talk about feminism a lot over the years. So this isn't like an aha thing. This is just like, wow, what an interesting moment where some of them are like a little resentful that feminists are claiming them as like part of their movement. And they're like, hey, I like just want to run. Like this isn't about anything else, you know? And I think from the vantage point of history, um, oh, you better believe it was about more than just running in ways that they were expressing, right? Why didn't they want to be associated with this movement? But also in ways that were expressly connected to Title IX and all this other stuff. So yeah, the, the running chapter was so interesting to yeah. write. And For to me, it was so I especially enjoyed, cool. And I especially enjoyed getting to look at the uh, jog bra collection in oh, the God. Smithsonian. I mean, like it's... how cool is that? <laughs> the creation of the sports bra, like landmark moment. <laughs>
1: All right, just dropping in here to give a shout out to our partners, AG1. I started drinking AG1 daily over a year ago. I was looking for an all-in-one nutritional supplement that was easy to add to my daily wellness routine. AG1 replaces your multivitamin, probiotic, and more in one simple drinkable habit. It helps build your health foundation first. I drank mine while making my coffee in the morning. With just one scoop, I get the nutrients and gut health support to thrive throughout my day and cover my nutritional bases. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash Marnie on the Move. That's drinkag1.com slash Marnie on the Move. Now back to our conversation. I still think they need to do some work, but there are a lot of good brands out there. And actually, there's a woman that I met that used to, that is leaving Jiro cycling. And she just started a line. um, And I don't remember the name, but she started a line of bras for women.
0: Well, it's so funny because early on, one of the things that was so interesting with these women who invented the sports bra is like, there was no place for it in the like retail economy, right? right? Like it was very functional. It was not fashion because I think you're talking about how today yeah. so many sports bras are more like crop tops, like yeah, totally. you know, and not not aren't necessarily performance. Oh, like bra, bra These were okay. pure. Yeah. yeah, these were like pure performance. And so lingerie stores, which were often like made really for men who were going to buy presents for their, sexy presents for their wives or girlfriends to wear. They were like, we don't want this like weird elastic contraption. But like sporting goods stores were like, gross. We like don't sell stuff for <laughs> boobs in here, you know? And so they really had yeah. to like create this new space in the market for something that was so needed, right? Yeah. Um. I mean, yeah, I was so taken in Catherine Switzer's memory when she was talking about, I think when she was actually playing field hockey, she and her teammates used to like bind their breasts with like all kinds of like elastic materials to like keep them in place while they played. Like, would you go out for the team if like there wasn't even a garment that would have you comfortable to do that? It's really a different time,
1: you know? Yeah, it is a different time. And I still think there's a lot of room for design in that space. But yeah, I I do. For
0: sure. Including
1: if anyone's listening, getting rid of those stupid little pads that like fall out all the time. Yeah, I know. I have like like a stack of them like this high in my drawer and I'm like, I don't even know what bra – what like workout bra they came from or what bra they came from or what bathing suit they came from. I'm like, it's it's all lost know, on me. I They should just sew
0: them in. Yeah. I think they should just
1: sew them in. I end up throwing them out because I like don't have the time to like organize Put them back them, in. It's like, you know? it's like pulling yeah. a string out of your shirt. Like it's one of the most challenging. Yes. You need to have like – it's a yoga activity. You need to have a lot of patience. Yeah, there's like enough
0: <laughs> like, enough challenges to getting to the gym. I don't need like some like fine motor have skills to put activity. To broad pads
1: back in. Or, or like <laughs> Totally. You go out in them and they're organized they're in wrong. <laughs> right
0: totally like doubled over yeah speaking of
1: fitness I want to just one last like deep dive into your book and then I have like other questions Lottie Burke Molly Fox Jeff Martin that was where I started so before I was a runner before I was a yogi my mother growing up in Long Island you know it was probably the 80s like late 80s I was probably 16 so eight late 80s I was going to classes with my mother who was driving into the city from Long Island to go take classes at Molly Fox and all the Lottie Burke, Jeff Martin, all of that. It was like, it was so cool. All of my mom's friends did it. It was like the thing and I loved it. Step classes, all of it. Take me back, what did that do for our fitness culture? (laughs)
0: I'm so jealous you got to like experience in person that era in New York fitness. Cause I, I, I discovered suburbics in 1995 as yeah. a teenager in suburban Boston. So, you know, the group thing in that era, but this is not like Manhattan fitness. Okay. So what Wait, was it? So- the
1: eighties or am I like totally out of context? I'm, yeah, was it? No, no. Though that, that was the. I mean, I.
0: Yeah. Yes, okay. that was the '80s that you're okay. talking about. You were that's in Boston, totally right. No, but, but it extends separate- like into the early '90s. I yes. was I was in Boston, but I was born in 1978, so I wasn't really old okay. enough to like do yeah. like workout workouts until the '90s, and I, I didn't find it until high school. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, there's this really like the kind of like you know you have jogging like we're talking about that's happening in the '70s, and actually there are women who get on board with this cardio thing but they don't want to be what they call being be cheered on in the streets like basically being catcalled but they want to exercise so this in many ways gives rise to this era of kind of like studio fitness classes those for the most part in that period with some exception were not happening in gyms like gyms a lot of them like they built studios. A lot of them actually ripped up um, racket uh, courts and, like, indoor tennis courts and made dance studios in the early 80s when, like, jazzercise was taking off and these group classes. But for the most part, like what you're talking about, these group fitness classes were happening Either in standalone studios, right. you know, with people like um like Jeff Martin or Molly Fox like opening up these spaces, or Lottie Burke, who had her own brownstone, which is like fancier than the other places, like they were even either happening in those places, or in like that's like the kind of elite of the elite like Manhattan scene. Or they were happening in like rec centers and off-hour school gyms, or parks and rec facilities, or church basements, etc. But it really, I was so fascinated with this because it was this like new moment in movement that was literally creating these new spaces. Like they didn't exist in like the Jack LaLanne Health Spa, or the right. Big Tanny Club, or in a lot or in a lot of YMCA's. Like by design, they would use like the gymnasiums for them. And what you have is this, you know, desire to, for women to come together in community. I think that has a lot to do with like the feminism of that era, women who have some more money to spend on themselves. Right. And who are kind of embracing a version of a kind of like feminism, which is about all that, taking time for myself, working on my body, getting strong, spending time with other women, all of that. But again, I love these tensions and it's connected also to like, and also being thin for, you know, Memorial Day, like, cause there is like this weight loss dimension to it. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's not going to lift really heavy weights, right. Or, or, or like compete in a race. And I'm not diminishing that. I no. just think it's like an interesting mix. Now, those specific environments that you talk about, like, let's start with, like, Molly Fox and Jeff Martin. I mean, one of the reasons that I just wish I could have been there is because the energy of that space, as I have understood it to be from my interviews, from looking at video, from talking to to people, et cetera. Like, I think Molly described it as, like, a daytime disco, right? That there was just, like, this intense kinetic musical energy of people moving together. And a lot of like people who are not what you consider today, the kind of like Lululemon wearing, like hard driving corporate person jumping in to a class in between like meetings, There were those people, I mean, Lululemon didn't exist yet, but there were those kind of like more corporate folks, but this was also like, especially at Molly Fox's, which was downtown, like a real gritty mix of like artists and performers and like celebrities and weirdos. And like, I think even though it was like the cutting edge of that scene, it wasn't fancy in the way that we think about like, you know, going into like a soul cycle today with its yeah. bespoke scent and like, you know, whatever. It was much grittier. And I think that's super interesting too. And something which I really highlight in the book is like it's not just that this was like like a disco, but in the daytime. Like actually there was a real connection between yeah. the nightclub scene and the gym scene I was gonna scene, say especially people
1: probably rolled in from the nightclub to the class. Just I don't know anyone like, that does that. Just kidding. For sure. I, mean, the no- I used the to go to yoga people- at like six in the morning and wake up at, go home at four.
0: That's impressive. I yeah, was, was like insane. never that cool, but it I had to like cool. pick one or the other. Yeah. But there were like instructors who would tell me, you know, they'd teach back to back to back and they'd be like doing coke in the bathroom in between, right? Mm-hmm. Like this was like, kind of part of that. And then there were actually entrepreneurs who I talked about in the book who were nightclub entrepreneurs. And they would look at like the hot guys and be like, yo, I have a gym. Why don't you come to the gym tomorrow? And like, there was this like, you know, back and forth between the nightclub scene and the gym scene. And so yes. they really, that energy, it was very organic. It wasn't like, let's create a nightclub based workout. Right. It actually like kind of happened in that, in that natural way. And so, yeah, that was just like a really unique moment that it was really exciting to capture. And honestly, really nerve-wracking to write that part of the book because I know some of those people, yeah. or I came to know them, you know, personally. Like these are like real people who like I might run into, and um, or living. I mean,
1: and they're still teaching some person, of these obviously. instructors, right? Molly Fox is teaching yeah. for Apple, and Jeff Martin. Where is he? Is yeah. he, at-
0: he teaches at Equinox and these like private classes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so it it really, you know, as historians, you're often writing about dead people who can't be like, you got this wrong. But it was really moving to me to like get the feedback from a lot of those folks and people in that world who lived through it and be like, you like kind of nailed it I mean I'm sure it's not perfect but like you really captured a moment that like the history books haven't paid attention to yet so that's like feels yeah, really yeah it's
1: really fun say. I think for everyone to read like whether you're into running and athleticism and sport in that capacity or fitness or you want to learn the history of the culture and accessibility to workouts and training and what was your journey that's into me. fitness like you started out in Boston yeah tell me
0: yeah um an unlikely journey into fitness if you will <laughs> um so i grew up in the, i was born in 1978 and 44 um i grew up like definitely that generation of like daughters of title nine where like you were expected to like go out for a team like that was definitely you know i feel privileged to be part of that generation right. but at that time I saw it really as a pressure to do something that I like wasn't good at, had no interest in. I mean, I kind of had interest in it because I felt like cool people exercise, cool yeah. people are athletes. And I like was this like very bookish person, but, um, I was basically alienated by like every physical opportunity um, presented to me. Like I was not athletic, and like you know, I, I finally got on the lacrosse team in high school um, because at that point that was like a new sport, and so the barrier was very low. Like I could never like go out for the soccer team; those girls were like playing since age four. But like I had gone to like ballet classes. I was like, I'm not exactly thrown out, but it was very clear I wasn't gonna like make it past. I ballet got thrown gone. out of
1: every dance I just- class I ever took. Don't worry, it's all good. <laughs> I'm.
0: I'm- PE was like total humiliation for me. And I I realize now retrospectively, like, I was really bought into the separation of mind and body. Like I was like, well, I'm really smart. And like, maybe that means I can't be good at sports or like, at least I'm good at the important stuff. Like, you know, the cerebral stuff. And I didn't really have that sense that they could be connected. Um, So what ended up happening is my junior year of high school, a big public high school, in Newton, Massachusetts. I was like, so humiliated in PE. And I'm like, I cannot do this anymore. And I read the student rights and responsibilities manual. And it said- you can do an independent study in physical education. It can't be a school sport. I'm like, no problem, but it has to be a supervised activity. So this is like 95. So I go to the head of the department and I'm like, I would like to literally exercise this right. And they're like, no one's ever done that. And I'm like, I'm about to. And so they came back and they were like, well, you can either get a personal trainer or you can do something called group fitness. And my parents were like, personal training, that is for rich people because it was back then. We're not paying for that. And however, um, we belong to a Jewish community center where they had group exercise classes that we had, you know, access to. And so I'm like, well, anything is better than P.E. And I signed up for a step aerobics class. I thought everyone in there was so old. They were probably like 32. And um, it was really awkward at first. But like I had to keep going because I needed to get my sheet signed off, right? Yeah. And I like fell in love with Group Fitness. I'm like, I don't know what this is. I feel so strong. I feel so happy. I feel like better equipped to do like everything in my life. Like, what the hell is this? And I want more of it. And so that was like, I don't know, my like, aha, like. Eye opening moment. And then, so for the next, that's in high school, right? I went to college in New York at Columbia. And like, I was just like always seeking out every opportunity to be in that world. Like, I worked the desk at, and it's now gone, but on the Upper West Side, there was a world gym that had these like amazing workout classes. And I would work the desk in order to be able to have a free membership. I would like travel all over the city to try to like take different instructors. And at that point, it's funny, like, it was a different moment. Like it was, like almost kind of laughable that this like Ivy League girl was also this like gym bunny at the time. Mm-hmm. Like, and I bought into that, and I'm not proud of it. Like, you, I'd be like, in another life, I'd want to be an aerobics instructor. Like, isn't that funny? Like, and I'm like, what an asshole I was. Like, you know, like why couldn't those things go together? Why yeah. couldn't I appreciate the genius of movement that these teachers I admired so much had had going on? So that's kind of the way it started. I didn't get that certification until later when I became certified to teach intensati but the other kind of i think important thing that happened is I moved out to graduate school in California and I was like really involved in like a lot of kind of like feminist circles and I started to have this guilt like oh my god I love this whole fitness world but it's like really messed up and like I love it and I'm getting a lot out of it but it's also like this vehicle for this like horrible messaging about like body image and like what women should be. And it's disgusting, but I love it. Like what's going on here. And so I felt really like, this is like a deep conflict for me. I joke, like I was like TA feminist studies and I'm like stuffing my spandex underneath, like, you know, Naomi Wolf's, the beauty myth, like feeling kind of like a sellout. Um, and then also being in California, this is early 2000s, like I saw a group that it turned out was team in training, training for a marathon. And they were like all ages and sizes. No one that would look like what I thought a runner would look like. And I'm like, maybe I could run a marathon. And all of a sudden I started like feeling like I'm like I could like I'm like a, a fitness person, too. And um, then I moved back to New York. I found Intensate that kind of had all the amazing fitness stuff without like any of the damaging messaging. Got certified in that. And then I started a schools program, um, experiential wellness in New York City, and that was sort of my first like activist commitment around this. And out of that grew this book. So yeah, it's a long, um, it's been a long journey, but this feels like an important turning point. And I'm not leaving the gym or the book writing anytime soon. Although, I can't think I'm I i do not know if I'm write about fitness again.
1: <laughs> you know, this isn't your first book. You have another book, Classroom Wars: Language, Sex, and Making of Modern Political Culture which explores the roots of cultural wars in American public schools. And, you know, I don't know what your next book is going to be, but you also talk a lot about culture and politics and race and gender in your book now in Fit Nation. So, you know, like you don't have to get into the details, I should say, because I know it's, it's extensive in the book, but maybe some highlights of, you know, what are some of the social justice issues that you explore in your book and maybe how do you envision a more inclusive and equitable future? Yeah, so
0: Classroom Wars um, really started as my dissertation, and it's about uh, these fights over teaching um, about sex and gender and um, race and language in schools during a really politically fraught time. Sound familiar, anybody? Like, it sounds a lot like right now, yeah, right? And- but um, I, w- I was actually talking about the 60s and 70s in California, which was another moment of, like, a lot of political tumult, tumultuousness, um, when the curricula and in the schools became such a flashpoint. And, you know, I came to that um, because I had been a public school teacher before going back to getting my PhD. And I was just super interested, also as a child of the 90s, when people were talking about multiculturalism and, you know, kind of no one used the term anti-racist at the time, but sort of like diversifying curricula, like all of that was very interesting to me. And so that kind of led me to that study. And now when I was doing that research, that book, like I said, came out in 2015, but the question I got the most was like, I don't really get why are you studying um, fights over curriculum that deal with race and ethnicity and ones that deal with sexuality and gender? And I'm like, because they're actually connected because um, they're about sort of like justifying or legitimizing the presence of so-called others um, or marginalized people in the curriculum and in the schoolhouse and the opposition to them absolutely unifies them as a threat to the existing order and so i think they're connected that was a very hard sell back in 2015. I hate to be like, I told you, but like today, I think like no one asked that question. And I still do press about that book because this, the themes are so really relevant. No one asked that question because we are seeing right now so much, those isu- issues of race and sexuality and curricular battles that yes. are really unmatched. And so um, that was that book. I still remain really passionate, like not only as a scholar and an educator, but as a parent now about, and a citizen about what's going on in schools um, in America. So It's interesting getting from that to Fit Nation. People are like, oh my God, that's so different. Like, how did you get from there to there? Yes and no. Like, first of all, it's still like a 20th century American story with like really um, a lot of stuff happening in the 60s and 70s. In many ways, they're both like in big ways, they're national stories, but they're also California stories, which is like, I think so interesting to think about the way the furthest point West in America, which was like not even the United States for much of all of our early history has become so determinative of our culture, right? In the past hundred years or so. Like, so it used to be, you know, like so many books are written about like the role of Boston, the role of New York, the role of like the original 13 colonies. If you look at our modern past, so much of it originates in California. And I mean, Hollywood, I mean, Silicon Valley, I mean, like the campuses of Berkeley. I mean, the right-wingers of Orange County, like I'm using caricatures, but so that's like the California origins of modern America, like really, really fascinating. So in that way, they're really connected too. um, and then, yeah, in terms of a new book and they both come out of my passions, like, and my personal experience. Right. And for me, like, I'm not a memoirist, like, I'm not like, this is the me story. And I think we should really be very careful about so-called me search, but yeah. like for usually my interest in this topic begins with some granular experience i've had and i'm like i want to understand this beyond like my thoughts on the topic and like really do rigorous research so yeah now i am in very early stages on a new book together with my podcast co-host neil j young another historian and we want our writing or beginning to research a book a new history of the hamptons oh oh my god
1: that is so So awesome I need to talk to you about Thanks. that. Thanks. I hope it will be. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, yeah. I I would read that. I would love to hear more. And you and your podcast, the Past Present Podcast. So if people want to listen, tell me yeah. a little bit about your podcast.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So so I have like two podcasts. One yeah. like very is was limited series so I can just say very quickly that's called Welcome to Your Fantasy actually Neil was a consulting producer on that too that's nine episodes made it was just came out as a Spotify original in 21 and it's the story of Chippendales as a true crime story but as a cultural phenomenon and yes if you've seen any of those tv shows we came first to that story in terms of the modern moment I have to listen to it I know about past yeah it's really yeah so that was like a really fun Uh, And hard project to do but it was amazing we did 70 interviews it took us from California to New York like and it's really the production team on that was so good. It's like beautifully scored like I'm proud of it and I'm not just like bragging about me but it was this great team that we had past present another labor of love which I'm proud of for very different ways so. Neil J. Young, who I just mentioned, and Nicole Hemmer, we helm that. We are three co hosts. That has been around since 2015, believe it or not. We're on episode three hundred. Yeah, thanks. I mean, as a podcaster, I'm
1: saying that. Like it takes a lot, but it's really good. So yeah. It takes a lot. Thank you. And our
0: idea is that every week we turn hindsight into foresight um, or at least insight. And we take an issue in the news and we unpack it from the perspective of historians, not telling you like, this is what it means, but really answering the question of like, how did we get here and how do we think about this historically?
1: That's awesome. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners at Marnie on the move about Fit Nation?
0: One thing I would say about Fit Nation is that like, I think, think from the response that it both is kind of like educational and fun and instructive to people who are like really into fitness, which is definitely a goal of mine, but also like, if you hate the gym or you never go to the gym or like, you know, this is just not your world. I'm hoping that it really has something to offer, um, you know, that wide swath of society too, who is by the way, like 80% of Americans who yeah. don't exercise the minimum amount because it explains like even why anyone would have strong feelings about the gym. Right. And yeah. why it came to be such a huge part of our culture. And yet Inaccessible in many ways, unwelcoming in many ways, not something that most Americans are doing. And so I think sometimes, like, you know, you and I obviously love fitness. So, yeah. like, I hope we don't seem too insider baseballish, but there really is this bigger story of like how this thing that not even that, like, everybody talks about and thinks is good for you became something that far from everybody participates in. And in right. some ways that's one of the most important points, I think.
1: Yeah, because I think we are very deeply immersed in this world. So it seems like everyone in our world is doing that. But then when you like talk to people yeah. in the rest of the world outside of New York, it's not the same thing. Oh
0: totally. And it's a class yeah. it's really a class thing in a lot of ways too. And that has deep historical roots. So um I mean one of my you didn't ask me this, but yeah, I'll what's say it. Yeah. One of my big Yeah, one of my big hopes for this book is that it opens our eyes to the fact that, you know, who exercises is not just a function of how motivated or how good or virtuous they are, but it reflects a lot of different opportunities and lack of opportunities that they have. And so if we could have a kind of fitness inequality or fitness justice conversation where we're focusing on having people have Access to like safe streets, to green spaces, to recreational places where you know a kid can shoot some basketball or do like a fun outside class where parents can jog a track or whatever, like focusing on all of those things, not to mention work schedules that allow people to have time in their life to plan for exercise or live close enough to their job. They're not commuting all the time. Like all of these things are actually really connected to exercise in a way that can often be forgotten when we just think of it as like, oh, like, leg warmers
1: or fun trends from the
0: past. Yeah. Like it's got all that, but I think it's like, it's connected to this bigger message about who has access, who doesn't and how we can change that.
1: And so what are you doing these days to stay fit? Oh my gosh. I you you're so am, busy. Um, you're like, I, yeah,
0: I, I know I'm. I wouldn't say I'm in a lull, but I um, injured my foot actually not long after I saw you running, and so like that was 48 hours before this half. I was like very happily training for, it. so I'm just getting back into running. But you know, it's that humbling thing where I'm like very slow, and so it's motivating. It's like hard to get out. But um, the thing I've been working on is getting a handstand. Oh, oh that's just like. Yeah. It's not exactly exercise. I would call it movement, but it's so hard. It involves so much focus. Um, And it's very, very humbling. And it's so different from other workout goals, whether it's like, you know, training for a race or, um, you know, looking a particular way, which is like a lot of what we're sold. Um, This
1: working on a particular skill, I'm finding really exciting. Are you working on that like in the middle of the room or are you trying to just do it at the wall?
0: Oh, you know the right questions to ask. Um, I can totally do it by the wall. And like, I actually, so I'm really scared of the middle of the room. That's my problem, right? So, yeah. yeah. So like, I actually can be, I, what I like to do is go near enough to the wall that if I fall over, which is a lot of the time, I'll hit the wall, you know, yeah. rather than like go totally over. But a lot of times I actually can stick it for a little while without even, like I can kick up and not hit the wall first. How about you? Where are you at? This? Uh,
1: I'm at, I haven't practiced yoga in like a year. um, So, (laughs) but I've always worked on that. So I think it's mental uh, as somebody who's like taught and also not in like, and also studied. And I, it's tremendously mental for me because I can get up at the wall. It's also physical. So you need to have like a seriously awesome core, but mentally. Yeah. So I can never do any of those things in the middle of the room because I will fall over and I don't want to fall. That's just like in anything that I do. Unfortunately, you have to take risks and be ready to fall. But like, and that's like a metaphor for life.
0: Totally. Um, Yeah,
1: I just just don't want to fall in a headstand or handstand. So I do them at the wall. But, you know, I haven't done a handstand in ages. And I just sometimes do headstand. And it's kind of like running, you know, like if you do it every day, you do it all the time, like the consistency. Like that is a trick to physically doing it. But if you, uh, you know, show up one day as like I the, know. the yogis I'm working would say <laughs> yeah. yeah
0: totally that's awesome totally. though
1: yeah totally Natalia it was so great to connect with you and chat with you and um, maybe I'll see you out on a run or we can coordinate something I would love that thank you
0: so much this was so much fun I really appreciate it
1: thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move if you like what you hear leave us a five star review in Apple Podcasts follow us on social at moneyonthemove1 at gmail.com and let me know what you're enjoying what you want to hear more of if you have questions for our guests just reach out